I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. You know, we've been doing a little mini-series on the parables of Jesus, and today I'm going to, this is my last one, I'm going to move off this theme. By the time I speak again, it'll be December, so we'll be into uh, uh, the Christmas season in full flight, and I'll focus on that as a theme. Amy's going to speak next week. So I'm on vacation, believe it or not, next week. Yeah, I'm staying in Red Deer. I'm teaching a class on Wednesday night and working on some papers for my graduate course. That's my vacation. Praise God. I'm happy about that. You know, I was thinking about just the, the, the challenge or the cost of serving God. And we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. And I, as I was reflecting on that, a number of people came to my mind. One of them was... You know, I'll put it this way. There were five young men who in 1956 died in a, in a jungle in the Amazon somewhere. His name, well, their name, one of the names was Jim Elliott. And these young men had gone to reach a very, you know, Stone Age tribe of people who, you know, had never had any contact with white people. So you can imagine how shocking it was. And so feeling threatened and all the rest of it, they killed these five young men. And Jim Elliott wrote this as a student. And, and you, ha you have to understand the background in order to make sense of what he says. He, he writes, the will of God is always a bigger thing than we bargain for. But we must believe that whatever it involves, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, how many here, you're already connecting. You know, if you have your Bible in your mind, you're thinking of the scripture. He's basically focusing in on, he's focusing in on Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where it says, where Paul's writing, and he said, in light of what God has done for us, he said, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Or it says here, your, which is God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. He's quoting from that scripture, basically. And he's, what he's saying is, you have no idea what God's will will bring into your life. It's a lot bigger than we bargained for, he said. And in Jim's case, it actually cost him his life. Very challenging, the cost of being a servant of Christ. You know what's interesting? His wife, Elizabeth, and then Nate Saint, another young man, his sister, Rachel, went back to that tribe. And they were actually able to broach them, bring the gospel to them, and they became believers, and a church was established among those people. It's a very powerful story. You know, I could spend <clears throat> all day talking to you about one exploit after another of believers, and I'm, I'm trying to bring more contemporary ones. That was why I mentioned Jim Elliott. But when William Carey went to India in the latter part of the uh, 18th century, <clears throat> his, at, at first his wife was really reluctant to go, Dorothy, and, and eventually... Uh, he talked her into it, and they brought their family there. And for the next 41 years, William Carey never returned to England. As a matter of fact, when he got there, he had not anticipated the heavy financial cost of living there. He didn't anticipate the, the illness that they would encounter. They had dysentery, and some of his children eventually died. He didn't anticipate his wife not being able to handle the emotional strain of, of life in a foreign culture where you know, he was trying to bring the gospel. And actually... Um, she struggled with, you know, all kinds of varying degrees of, of mental instability and <clears throat> made for a very difficult situation. And if you'd asked, you know, William Carey, was it really worth doing that? 
Well, at the age of 73, when he died in 1834, which was 41 years later, he had translated the Bible into 40 different languages for the Indian people. There were now 700 converts in India. That doesn't sound like a lot, but you got to remember, this guy's cutting it out of nothing. He's the only person there. But then some other missionaries started coming and helping. And eventually a missionary movement was launched as a result of it. The price of serving Christ was extremely high. But I wonder if Kerry ever asked himself, was it worth it? When the rich young ruler <clears throat> excuse me, came to Jesus and asked what he might do to inherit eternal life, it's an interesting question, isn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what Jesus said to him? He said, I want you to take everything you have and give it away, and then come follow me. That was a very shocking statement. How many think that's kind of a shocking statement? Give everything you have. Give up everything to follow Jesus. But I want you to think of it in a little different relationship this morning. Think of it this way. He walked away sad. The Bible said Jesus loved him. He had kept the commands, but there was something lacking in his life, and he recognized that. And when he walked away, I want you to think about this. He now was embracing the riches that would be temporary and forfeiting the riches that would be eternal. You know, I've read that story. Sometimes I think, wow, that was an incredible demand of Jesus to make on this young man. Wasn't it kind of give up everything to follow me? And he, he was not willing to do that. And therefore, he gave up eternal riches. On the other hand, can you imagine what would it be like to give up everything that's temporal in order to secure everything that is eternal? That really is thinking ahead, isn't it? Isn't that kind of thinking outside the box? Isn't that kind of thinking into the future? Isn't that really the, what has to happen if we're gonna be successful as people? Because the people who live only in the moment are the people who literally forfeit the future. And that's so tragic. You know, the disciples were stunned by that. They said, you know, if a rich person can't get into heaven, who can? Because in their understanding, they thought rich people in the Jewish economy were people that were blessed by God. And they thought, who's going to get in? And Jesus made a very interesting statement. He said, with man, it's impossible to get in. With man, it's impossible to experience eternal life. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter made a very interesting statement. He said, Do you know, we've given up everything to follow you. What can we get? What do we get out of this? In other words, Peter was saying, is it really worth following you, Jesus? What, what, you know, is, is it, you know, what can we expect? What's really the cost of serving you? And Michael Green says it would be easy for us to sneer at the question. But which of us has given up what the disciples had? Perhaps that is why Jesus does not rebuke them, but rather encourages the 12. Because Peter says in chapter 19, verse 27, we left everything to follow you. What then will be for us? In other words, what are we going to get out of it? And so Jesus answers that in three ways. And if I get to the third point, I'll be shocked because I didn't do that in the first service. So don't worry about it. You're going to get the heart of it. The first answer basically to that question comes in the form of a promise. Jesus makes a guarantee that those who have left everything to follow him in this life should expect to receive from God a whole bunch of stuff in the future life 
but also he will take care of us in the present life. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Interesting. Do you know one of the things that, you know, Mark and I have been taking a course and we've been kind of saturated in a book by N.T. Wright called After You Believe. And uh, Pastor Mark and I have been texting back and forth. We've had a fun time with it. I think we're starting to master the book. But, you know, N.T. Wright says something very interesting. He believes that Christians have really missed the boat in one area. Because what we're always thinking about once we become a Christian is we're on our way to heaven. You know, that's a kind of a song. I was thinking of that song. We're on our way to heaven and the journey's getting brighter every day. Our focus seems to be on heaven. Once we become a Christian, we're, it's like we're living for heaven. But he points out something that that's not ultimately a biblical concept. <gasps> you should suck it all in right now and go, what? You know, that's heresy, pastor. No, just bear with me. Do you really, you know what the blessed hope was in the New Testament? It wasn't that the believers were gonna go to heaven. How many know what the blessed hope really was? The blessed hope was simply that Jesus would come back to earth. You see, when, when the believers die, yes, there's a time when, you know, believers who before the coming of Christ will come back with him from heaven, where to? Earth. That God is creating new heavens and a new earth. And so there's, we have a false understanding. See, we've kind of abdicated the planet. We kind of say, well, it's going to hell in a cart and a handbasket anyways. Don't worry about it. And it's a wrong thinking, folks, because in reality, Jesus is coming to save this world. And we need to understand that as believers, we have a responsibility. As a matter of fact, one of the premises in the particular book Mark and I are reading is simply that you and I are rulers and priests. And there's an idea that you and I have a responsibility in the here and now to begin to exercise a certain role on our planet. Isn't that interesting? And that that will continue into all of eternity. As a matter of fact, when he talks to these guys, how many are getting a sense that they have a position of responsibility that they'll be actually judging the 12 tribes of Israel? They have a position of authority. You see that? That's interesting. They gave up, uh, in a sense, their earthly ambitions and goals, and God said, that's fine, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to give you greater things in your future life. Because now you have what kind of life? Eternal life. It's a future life. It will, it'll be a continuous life. And so often our focus is on the momentary or the temporary rather than the long term or the eternal. And Jesus is, is simply saying, listen, you will never regret saying yes to God. I'm going to say this to all of us in this room. When you obey God, you will never live with regret. The only regrets we have in life is when we disobey God. Isn't that true? Those were, that's where the regrets come. Oh, I wish I would have done what God asked me to do here. And then we live with a measure of regret for not obeying God. But I'll tell you right now, if you say yes to God and you just say, I'm gonna just go for it, 
And that's what we're talking about today. I'm, I'm going to challenge you to give up everything you've got to follow Jesus. Because I still think some of us are holding back somewhat. Because there's a little fear in our heart that if we really committed to this and we really gave it everything we got and we shifted our thinking away from, as our staff talked about the other day, volunteerism, because I think that's where most of us as Christians in the church think of ourselves. We're just volunteers anyways. If we don't show up, it doesn't make a difference. You know, and our commitment level is all over the map. And today, I want to talk to you about ultimately giving everything for Christ. Scary thought, isn't it? For some of you, you're thinking that. Wow, this is really scary. But let me point out a few things. He says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Biblical scholar Donald Hagner says, the disciples who, gave up, who give up everything now can expect in the future to become powerful figures of rule and authority. You know, I was, I'm reading another book. One of the congregants, one of my friends here, gave me a book to read. And I'm reading about World War II and I'm reading about the lives of all these significant figures in World War II. But you know what I think is interesting? It's a little disheartening. Because these people that we esteem as great leaders of the time, their lives were an absolute disaster. They were a mess. And they weren't nice people. And some of the things that they were plotting behind the scenes were actually nasty. You know, it's a little disappointing about how these people were. We consider these people great people. But you know, when God looks at their lives and he sees what they did, I mean, yes, they made a contribution to society at a certain moment. But you know, I'm going to tell you something, folks. When we get into the future life, some of these people that we think were great are going to be the nobodies. And a bunch of people who seem to be very ordinary, living out the planet in obedience to Christ, doing his will, are going to become God's somebodies on this planet. So let's be careful what we're doing in this life because what we do now is defining what's about to happen in our future. And that is so true in all of our lives. If we make bad decisions in the now, it's going to have some very negative uh, uh, consequences in our future. We know that that's true. But what about our eternal future? And so we need to think about what we are doing. You know, Leon Morris warns us, those who are highly esteemed and held to be first in this world's order of things will end up last in the worst possible position. The point is that they've put their whole effort into earthly success without reference to the more worthwhile life of service to which Christ is calling them. Now, I'm not suggesting that some people who are successful in this life are not going to be successful in the future life. What I am suggesting is if we don't put Christ first and we're not doing what God wants us to do, we're going to have some problems. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, it says, inevitably, when the time comes that earthly success is seen for the tawdry and temporal thing it is, they will rank with the last. You know, some of the rich and famous, you know, that the, the world is ooing and awe over. They're not going to show up on God's radar screen at the end, folks. I'll just point that out to us. Secondly, the promise is that God will take care of us in this earthly life. You know, I love that. For those who have lost houses or families or financial resources because they've invested into the kingdom of God, God says, I'll take care of it. You thought you lost it. No, it was an investment. You know, a lot of us make interesting investments in life. And you know, sometimes when you invest, even in this earthly life, you can lose in your investments. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you invest in the kingdom of God, you will never lose. And it's not just about money. That's just the... <laughs> Money is just an expression 
of our time, energies, and resources, God is looking at our hearts. Where are we investing our heart? That's the issue that I think we want to have you understand this morning. Although the demands of discipleship are great, as Donald Hagner points out, it is always the case that our thinking and language are so conditioned by the realities of the present time frame that the blessings of the age to come can only be described in suggestive uh, poetical images. In other words, you know, they gave up these things, and so Jesus said, you're going to receive a hundredfold in this life. You know, I think Jesus is using a figure of speech called hyperbole. He's trying to make a point. And here's the point. I think sometimes we go, hey, God, I gave up this on the natural level. How come I'm not getting that back, that same thing back? You know what I mean? And you've heard preachers do this. If you give this much money, you're going to get that much more money. Let me tell you, that's all bogus. That's not even what the Bible is teaching. Okay? Don't go down that path. What Jesus is saying, he's using hyperbole to say this. Look. If you invest your life in my kingdom, you give yourself fully to it, I'll make sure you're taken care of in this life as well. That's what he's saying. You see, David said it this way, I was once young, now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. In other words, God says, you're my children, I'll take care of you. Okay? But that doesn't mean he's gonna make us all rich. You know, if you listen to some people, that's what they'll tell you. You know, that you're a Christian, you're supposed to all be financially rich. You know, re- show me that in the Bible. Matter of fact, that teaching is a heretical teaching, and I can prove it to you from the Bible. It says so in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you teach people that they're going to get rich because they're serving God, you're teaching them heresy. How's that? So if you hear that message, you go, well, that's a heretical teaching. That's not biblical. You know? And I'm just playing up straight up, giving you the, the, the biblical st- Understanding. But let me move on to the second way in uh, the answer to the question that Jesus, uh, that Peter's raising. You know, what do we get out of this? What is it? What's the cost of really following you? I mean, what's the benefit? Are, you know, does it pay to serve God? It says that in the book of Malachi. God was upset with them because they said it doesn't pay to serve God. And I want you to know it totally pays to serve God. That's a lie from the enemy. It totally pays to serve God but in a way that's a little different than you and I sometimes think. And this parable now is the heart of what I wanted to say this morning. This is where we're going. It brings it out. He says the last were rewarded not only first, but they were rewarded equally to those who had toiled all day long. Look at the story in Matthew chapter 20. He's talking about the work and the workers in the kingdom. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. Now let me give you an idea what the workday world was like for people in Jesus' day who were hired out to a farmer. They would get up and go to work at 6 a.m., and they'd work till 6 p.m. It was a 12-hour day, and they did it six days a week. How many go, that's that's, that's hard work. These guys weren't putting on... You know, I mean, these guys were, you know, lean machines. I'm telling you, it was tough. It was not easy. That's what I'm trying to give you an understanding. They were scratching out a living, you know. And these guys went to work. And they had, they were agreed with this landowner for a denarii day, which, by the way, was a very common wage, a daily wage in that time. And so they were happy with their wage. That, That was agreed upon wage. So they went to work for that wage. And then it says, he, 
it, in verse 3, it says about 9 in the morning. So now this is like three hours later, or in some versions it says in the third hour, right? 9 o'clock in the morning. He went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he said, he told, he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. Notice now they don't negotiate an agreement. The landowner says, listen, I'll take care of you. I'll pay what's right. I'll do good by you. And so they went out and worked for him. And then he goes on to say, uh, and they went out. And then he went out again about noon and then about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Okay? About five in the afternoon, there's about an hour left to work, he goes out looking for workers. I'm going to bring some points about this. This is, think about what he's doing. He's still looking for workers in his harvest field, right? At five o'clock he goes out there and, and, and it says, and he found others still standing around. He said to them, why are you guys standing around here doing nothing? All day long you're doing nothing. But there's something interesting. They were looking for work. They were waiting for work. They were hoping for work because they said to him, no one's hired us. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones. I love this. Because he's making a point. Remember, the last shall be first. So the last ones are now being paid. And notice what he pays them. Each of them receives a denarius. He's paying them the very same amount that he promised the guys that went to work at 6 a.m. Oh, so this is going to create a little tension in the labor force. As a matter of fact, one scholar says, uh, don't take this parable as your model for management. <laughs> it's probably not the right parable to take it, okay? This is, not, this is not teaching you how to, you know, run your business. This is not reflecting normal economic practice, all right? It's not a pattern for labor relations. You do this, you're going to have problems with your employees. You can, you, you'll see that. Jesus is going to tell us there's going to be a few problems here. As a matter of fact, in an age of unemployment where there's no state security to fall back on, to protect the worker, when an employer could literally do whatever he chose to do, that was the time when Jesus was living in. You know, the point of the story is simply, uh, it's, is that God is like the landowner. His generosity transcends human ideas of fairness. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm getting this coming at me now all the time. And it's something that happened when I started preaching the book of Job. And I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was so strong. You know, an epiphany means an aha moment. Like I'm getting, I'm starting to understand something about God that really is overwhelming me. And I've been preaching it. And I'm hoping you're getting the point. And I'm going to bring it out one more time. And it's simply this. That Job and his friends basically thought if I do the right things, I'll get the right results. Right? And there's a truth to that. It is true, but that's not always how God operates. And what I mean by that is, and the story brings it out as well, we have a feeling like the ultimate bottom line with God is everything's going to be just and fair. And I want to tell you right now, from our experiences in life, is everything just and fair in life? No. Right? It's not. 
And I'm going to make a deeper statement and say, God is just, but why you and I think God is not always fair is because God is generous. And that's what throws us for a loop. We're not ready for that. See, we see God do something and go, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that doesn't look fair because you're giving somebody else more than you're giving me. And we don't think that's fair. But let me ask a different question and we'll phrase it this way. What does God owe any of us? Really not a lot. As a matter of fact, what do we really deserve? Well, we, we're in trouble because when we sin, you know, we're messing our own lives up. Isn't that true? And if God wanted to, he could just let the wages of sin have their effect in our life and totally allow our lives to be totally wrecked and destroyed. But you know, how many were here last Sunday? You just happened to be here when I preached that last parable. Wasn't that an amazing parable where God ran? You know, I told the parable of the prodigal where God's running to spare his son the shame of the villagers. And so he himself shames himself. And so Jesus is basically saying, I'm like that. I am so generous, I'm taking your penalty on me. We do not deserve that, folks. That's called mercy and grace. And so we don't deserve what God's doing for us. And so when God does something like this, he's showing us the essence of his true nature, which is love, grace, and generosity. And that's what we have a problem with because God starts demonstrating this stuff. You know, and that's the point of this parable. When you think about it, you know, there's a number of things I think we learn about it, but let me just finish the parable because you're going to see what happens. Uh, the result, it says, verse 9, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, when they came, each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first were... What, what happened? When they saw that the guys that started work at five o'clock and got paid a denarius, what were they thinking? No, no, no. What were they thinking? They were, had an expectation. It says they expected that they would get more. But, whoa, whoa, whoa. Go back. What had they agreed upon? And so what did the landowner give them? A denarius. Was the landowner unfair? Oh, but he appeared unfair. See, that's how we communicate our feelings. We think God is unfair, but in the reality, it's an appearance in our mind of unfairness. God is being totally fair. It's just that with the guys at five o'clock, he was so compassionate because you know what he realized? These guys had families. These guys were trying to support their families, and he knew that if they didn't get a denarius, they could not support their family. He was being generous. True. See, we gotta get a hold of this. I, I don't know, this, is, this thought has just been continually impacting me. It's everywhere I turn in the Bible now. I'm, I'm stunned. God is showing me I'm really generous. And when all the world is com communicating that they think I'm unjust and unfair, they have a wrong understanding. They're, it's a perception of unfairness. I'm totally fair. And the reality is what they're having a problem with is my generosity. Wow. Is that powerful? It is to me. I'm going, wow, God, this is amazing stuff. So what are some of the things we can learn 
about from this parable. I, I wrote down seven of them. You're going to love these. First of all, we see that the landowner sought out the laborers. The laborers didn't come to the landowner. The landowner went to the laborers. How many see that? That's an important distinction, by the way. I'm going to make a point with that. He went out. Right off the bat, he's trying to find workers, right? And then he's back at 9 o'clock. He's back at noon. He's back at 3. He's back at 5. What does that tell you? He had a big job to do. He's concerned about the harvest. Do you know if you're living in Alberta and you're a farmer and the harvest at least is ripe, what, what happens on a farm? You work day and night. You've got to get that crop off because everybody in Alberta knows what? It's going to snow. It's going to do something. The weather's going to change, guaranteed, and we're not going to be able to get the crops off. And if we don't get the crops off, what, mean, what does that mean? We're in trouble, Houston. Big time trouble. You know, this is a big deal. We got to get this harvest off. And so there's a sense of necessity that there's a sense of urgency. How many get a feeling that this landowner, there's a sense of urgency? Not only is he doing a great thing by these people who are unemployed, but he's got a sense of urgency regarding the harvest. How many get a sense of that? He's constantly going out looking for workers. He's even willing to hire people at 5 o'clock in the afternoon because there's a sense of urgency about the harvest. How many feel it? I'm going to shift gears now. I want you to see red deer as the harvest field. I want you to see central Alberta as the harvest field. I want you to see people as the harvest field. I want you to think this way. If there are 15,000 Christians in Red Deer, I might be generous. Maybe there are. I hope there are. But what does that say? If there's 100,000 people living in our city and 15,000 know Jesus Christ and have eternal life, how many people are left over from that number? Very good, you pass math. 85,000. And these 85,000, what's happening? They're dying. And there's a sense of urgency. And God knows, you know, there's a, there's a powerful prophetic picture in the Old Testament where it says the summer has come to an end. The harvest is going to rot. There's going to be a spoilage. There's a, there's a sense of urgency. And you and I rarely feel that sense of urgency. Isn't it amazing? It's usually the tyranny of the urgent that demands our attention, but the most important things are the ones we can neglect. And that's always the way it's been in life. And the most urgent thing, as far as God is concerned, are the 85,000 people who every day, some of them are perishing and are not being harvested. And there's a sense with God that there's a need for workers to be in this field harvesting with the landowner. That we're cooperating with God and we're involved in this process of harvesting. But how many of us say, you know, Pastor, I don't feel that urgency. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I don't sense that urgency. But with God, there is that sense of urgency. Jesus said something very profound. He said, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are what? They're few. Think about it now. How many here in this room you could say, you know what, I feel like I'm giving God everything I've got. There's no holdback in my life. I'm giving him everything I've got. 
You see, I think what's happening in North America, we come to church, we've allowed the cultural thinking to shape our thinking. This is how people come to church. What can you do for me? You know, you let me down here, Pastor. You didn't do this for me. We come in as consumers. You know, if I don't like it here, I'll go there. Isn't that kind of how we think? We've, we've been totally bought into the culture of our culture. It's kind of tragic. And yet, it's interesting, it's the person who gives the most that gets the most. How many have figured that out? There's a paradox in life. It's the one who gives that gets, and it's the one who's trying to get that ends away dissatisfied and unhappy because they didn't get anything. You see, Jesus said you have to be willing to give your life in order to find it. And if you try to find your life, you're going to lose it. Do you know who gets the most out of church here on Sundays? I do. You go, what? Yeah, I have such a good day. I get up at 5 a.m. Some of you go, oh, that sounds terrible, Pastor. No, I'm excited about it. I go to bed early on Saturday nights. I don't like going out on Saturday nights because I want to be rested because I want to get up early because I want to pray. I want to get ready for Sunday morning. And I get into it. I, I have my own quiet time. I'm talking to God. I get into the text of Scripture I'm going to preach from. I come here at 8 o'clock and I pray for a half an hour with the men. For you guys, you know, some of the men that have gathered with me for over 20 years. I've had different people joining me with prayer before the service. And then I join the, the worship team at 8.30 and a bunch of the workers here. And we pray some more. And by 9 o'clock, man, my little motor's ready to go. I am so, you know, Amy, I am pumped. <laughs> That's her line. I'm pumped, Amy. And the service starts, and I just get so into it. I get to worship three times a day. Hallelujah. We have such great musicians in our church. I get to worship God with them. I know the songs. I know the lyrics because I hear it so much. You know, see what I'm saying? And it's so much fun. And I get to do it three times. And it is a blast. I am so blessed. Isn't that amazing? See, the person that's putting the most into it is going to get the most out of it. And I walk out of here and I am just satisfied every Sunday. I go, wow, God, you were so amazing. I got to watch you work in people's lives. You know, last night, uh, Friday night, Patty and I went out to visit a young couple. And they told me this a miracle story. It was just amazing. They have a documented uh, medical miracle. They, they've been suffering for 10 years. They've had all the... All the medical, you know, what do you call it, CAT scans and all the rest of the stuff. And when the, finally they came forward, they were in so much pain, we prayed for them. As a church family, we were praying and believing at the front here. And the doctor, finally they got a new doctor and he went as very top-notch specialist. He goes, I'm going to start from the beginning. We're going to look at all the stuff they said that's wrong with you. And he went inside the internal part of her body and looked. And he said, there's nothing there. Hallelujah. I go, wow, is that exciting? A documented miracle. And so I said to this young woman, I said, this is so exciting. You know, you're going to be able to encourage people. But she suffered for 10 years. It's a long time. But in God's timing and goodness, he did a miracle. Wow. Is that great? Well, 
Let me just, I'm just looking over my, my points here. I, I want to, oh man, I'm running out of time. Another lesson we learn is that the Lord of the harvest is generous. Here is encouragement for those who have delayed to enter God's service till late in their lives to work. That if you give it everything you got, you're going to get rewarded. It's never too late to begin. Isn't that exciting? You say, well, I'm kind of dilly-dallying around most of the time. I've wasted all this time. Hey, here's your opportunity. Now, you know, we're going to do something in 2015 in our church. We're going to create a campaign. It's called Hope Lives Here. You're going to see a lot of advertisement. But you know, that's not going to really cut the mustard. I already know that because the reality is 80% of the people that come to church, you know how they come? Through family and friends. How many know that? Number one reason why people don't come to church. Do you know what it is? We've never been asked. People have never been invited. You know, all they can say is no. Pastor, I'm afraid how they're going to say no. No, you know, my attitude is if somebody barks at me, I figure they've got the problem. That's how I think, right? If somebody gets upset with me because I'm talking about a spiritual thing, I go, they've got issues. I don't think I've got issues. I think they've got issues. I think I have a life-giving message. And I think there's a lot of needy people. So I'm not afraid. Just come up and talk to them. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Warren Worsby says, beware of making bargains with God. How many people you've kind of negotiated? You know what usually happens? We negotiate with God. God keeps his end of the bargain. We don't. And then we get upset when God keeps his end of the bargain. Because you know what? We didn't do anything with it. We didn't move on with it, right? Then the, here's the other one I think that's important. Beware of comparing ourselves with other people. Don't we tend to do that? You know, why were they upset? Why were these guys upset? If, there was no, if they hadn't seen the, the guys that came at 5 o'clock getting the denarius, they would have been okay. But they got upset because they got, hey, look what they're getting. The moment you and I look around and we look at what other people are getting, what do we think? God's not fair to me if they're doing better. Isn't that right? But God's just being generous to them. It's not, you know what? It's saying a lot more about us than it is about what's happening to them and what God's doing for them. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you to whom much has been given, much is required. So, but you know, we forget all those kinds of things. You know, do you know what Leon Morris points out? This verb that they were upset, they were, they were complaining. It says, you know, but they said, you know, I'm trying to find the right verse. Verse 11, but when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. It was a continual grumbling. When we get unhappy, what do we tend to do? Yeah, but who do we grumble to? Who? A whole bunch of other people. Do we not? We're not happy. We're telling everybody how miserable we are. And God gets upset about that because we're in the wrong. And, you know, the devil comes along, and it's all about self-pity, by the way. We get into a pity party, and he, he shows up and pours the tea. He keeps it going. 
you know, you'll always have somebody to listen to your whining and pitying and complaining. And I've learned one thing about life. Self-pity will never help you in life. It'll only make you more miserable. So if you want to be miserable, pity yourself. It's true. You know? Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. He's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. They, they wanted the things of this world. And he says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. We can be destroyed by, you know, our attitude. How, do, how, is, how are we destroyed by our attitude? You know what happens? We take ourselves out. We get so upset with life. We're so upset with God. We're so upset with other believers. I'm just going to do my own thing. And how many people have backslidden and gone their own way and did their own thing? All because they were unhappy with the way God was treating them. And by the way, how does God treat us? God is good. He's good all the time. But see, we get the wrong attitude. We are the problem. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm helping you guys all out. We are the problem, not, not God. And it's not the other people that you think are the problem. We're the problem. Stop blaming other people. It doesn't help you. The other thing is, we need to be careful. Sorry. Yeah, here it is. We need to be careful that we don't envy others. Hmm. Too often when we attack those who success, we attack those who are successful because they're exposing our own failures. That's usually what happens. It's, it's, it's triggered by envy. Envy is a bad thing. How many know envy is a sin? Anybody know that? Envy is a sin. Don't envy people. You don't know the struggles they've got in their lives either, by the way. You just are focusing on their successes. You don't know their challenges. When our eyes are on others, where are they not? Thank you. They're not on God. And where should they be? On God. And you know what? If you were an angel in heaven, and God, okay, had two angels in heaven, God says to the one angel, I want you to go down and take this message and tell, you know, the premier of Alberta something, or the mayor of Red Deer something. And then the other angel's told, I want you to go down there and clean that toilet. You follow this. The angels don't look at it as like, oh, as they walk out of God's hall. Yeah, I'm going to go talk to the mayor of Red Deer. And the other one goes, yeah, i got to go clean the toilet at Livingstone's church. Some kid, you know, made a mess. You think that's how they would think? The angels look at it this way. If God's asking, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what he's asking me to do. It doesn't matter how big, how small. It's God that's asking. That's all that matters to me. I'm his servant. We got to get a different thinking, folks. We got to reorient our thinking and say, if God's asking it, I'm happy with it. Whatever he's asking me to do, it's fine. The other thing we need to understand uh, is God is not answerable to mankind how he rewards us. How many know that's true? He doesn't have to give you an account of what he's doing. If he wants to be generous to this person over there, what's that to us? Remember the one time Peter and John are walking along the Sea of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection? And, you know, Jesus is saying, yeah. Uh, you know, John, this is what's going to happen. You know, this is what's going to happen to you, Peter. You're going to be crucified. <laughs> Peter goes, yeah, well, what's John going to get? And what did Jesus tell him? It's none of your business. I'm just paraphrasing it. It's none of your business. 
And we got to stop this business of looking around, you know, and, and thinking that God owes us an accountability. Folks, that's backwards. We owe God. We are accountable to God. God's not accountable to us. God will always be consistent. He's always true to his nature. How many here in this room can say, I'm always true to who I am? Not always. I've had a few failures in my life, Pastor. Yeah, so who are, who are we to you know, try to hold God to an account? He doesn't have to answer to us. We have to answer to him. He's the creator. He has a purpose in mind for our lives. But let me move on to the last thing here. Are we engaged in the work? You know, in this parable, I see people standing around. How many see that? There's people standing around. Now, it's not that they're not willing to work, because obviously they went to work when they were invited to work. I think work is a gift. How many believe work is a gift? How many think work is a curse? Okay. <laughs> Somebody, not all, there's, you know, honesty is at an interesting level in the church today. Okay, let's look at it this way. Before the curse ever showed up, God put Adam to work. Work is not under the curse. As a matter of fact, I would say this. What happens if we had a major recession right now and all of a sudden you guys, all, all of a sudden a whole bunch of us got our pink slips and said we can't work anymore? All of a sudden work would no longer seem like a curse. You'd be thinking, how am I gonna feed my families? You'd be a little bit, you'd be, it would be tense, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. But here's the deal. We can look at it like, you know, thank God I have this job. What a privilege it is. You know, I, feel one, I feel like I'm one of the blessed people on the planet. I, I do what I love to do. You know, I'm not saying it's always easy. I'm just saying I love preaching. I love teaching. I love leading. I love people. I love to see God work in people's lives. That's why I do what I do, okay? I'm called to do this. What a privilege to do this. But I'm going to ask the question. One of the biggest problems, I think, in our Christian life is we see ourselves only as volunteers. As a staff, we had a little discussion. We don't want to use those words anymore. You're no longer volunteers. You're servants of Christ. You have to think differently. When I use that word volunteer, it's like, well, if I don't show up, so what? You know? Let me ask a different question here. How many here, I'm not going to suggest that you're not doing anything, but I'm going to go this way. How many here say... You know, Pastor, I know that if I stood before Jesus tonight, I could say to him, I gave him everything I had. I'm serving him at my ultimate capacity. I don't have to, you know, be ashamed of anything. I've given him everything I've got. That's the question I'm going to ask today. Because think of it this way. Jesus, you know, we think that he needs a lot of people. I'm not convinced of that anymore. I used to think that way when I was a younger pastor. But then I've rethought about it. You know, Jesus only focused on basically 12 people. And my thought is simply this. These guys were so committed, aside from the one that betrayed him. But think of the other 11. 10 of them died for Jesus. 10 of them out of 11. How many say that's pretty intense? How would you say those, kinda, those guys kind of gave it all they had? It cost them their lives. They just gave them everything, and at the end, it cost them. Only John, you know, died of old age, basically. He died a natural whatever death, you know. The rest of them were martyred. They were giving Jesus everything they had. Jesus was able to change the world with those 11 men. Was he not? 
And why was he able to do that? Because they were fully committed. Do you know what would happen in our city if we had 11 fully committed people? We'd turn the world right side up. So I'm going to close with this, this little illustration. I love it. Recruiter came, three actually, came to a high school classroom in the States. It was an Army recruiter, a Navy recruiter, and a Marine recruiter. The teacher said, look, we got 60 minutes, that's it. So you guys are going to have to divide it up amongst themselves. The Army guy got up, he split for 29 minutes. The teacher's getting a little bit nervous, you know, time slipping away. This guy used a little bit more than he probably should have. But what really chagrined the teacher was when the Navy recruiter spoke for 29 minutes. Now the teacher's embarrassed. Because the other recruiter, the Marine guy, has two minutes. She said to the Marine guy, I'm so sorry. You only have two minutes. He said, don't worry. He said, I'm not going to talk to everybody here, and I'll only need two minutes. He got up to the front of the class, and he said, listen, this does not apply to most of you. We only need a few good men and women. That's it. And most of you probably won't be able to cut it. Okay? So let's go. After the class, there was a sign-up, you know, interest in these three areas. You know where all the, all the young people went? Of course, to the Marines, because he said, we only want the best. And I'm going to say this right now. If you really want to make a difference, you've got to give everything. And when you do that, when you give God, when you can say, I've given you everything, I've given you my best, you will never live with regret. But if you stand before Jesus one day and said, you know, I was a slacker, I was a shirker, I was a whiner, I was a complainer, it was about what other people could do for me, and I was never happy with life. What a sad indictment to be standing before the one who gave everything for you. Wouldn't you say that's true? Stand. Can I just have that PowerPoint back on, Peter? I want to just move it to the last frame. I wrote down, it's in that attitude of giving that we discover the joy of living. I like that. I wrote that, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's the truth. It's in an attitude of giving that we discover the joy of living. And I want to close it, you know, Jim Elliott. Somebody liked this quote, too. I've never forgotten this. Once I got this quote, I memorized it. Because he said something so profound. He said, remember, this is the man in his 30s, early 30s, who was martyred for Christ. You know what he wrote? He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is that powerful? So you and I can't even keep our lives. You can't keep anything you have, by the way. It's all going to go. It's all temporary. You can't keep this. You're not an unwise person to give up everything you have for Christ. To gain what you cannot lose, that which is eternal. You'll never lose what's eternal, folks. Any investment you've ever made in the kingdom of God, any time you've ever been obedient to God, you will never lose on that proposition. I guarantee you right now, ultimately, you're going to go, that was the greatest investment in the world. You know, some of us have made investments in life and they haven't panned out. We've, we've had losses. Didn't work out the way we thought. 
But I'll tell you one thing. You invest in the kingdom of God with your life, you will not be disappointed at the end. You know, I, I said something, Leonard is in the military, I said to him in the first service, I said, you know what my prayer is? And I've thought of this for a long time. I, will, I am trying to do something in our church. You need to understand where I'm going with you. I am not really not that interested in a bunch of whiners and criers and carry-oners and all the rest of it. That's not where my focus is. I'll still love you. You can rot. You can tell me. You can cry. I'll, I'll hug you. I'll listen to you. But here's what I'm trying to do so you understand it. I am trying to create an elite force of Christians who are so radically committed to Christ and they're so absolutely giving everything they've got that I know that we're going to change our city. That's what I'm looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what this message is about. You say, well, okay, yeah, we're all clapping. Here now, let's do some practical application. Now we're going to meddle, you know. You know, we have a third service now, and we have visitors every week. They're getting saved. I, you know, it's interesting. I can preach a sermon, and I can change the application at the end. I did that five weeks ago, and... You heard, a, you heard a different application in the 11 o'clock service. By the time it got to 6 o'clock, I was flat out preaching for souls to be saved. And you know what happened? Four people gave their lives to Christ. First time decisions. Yeah, beautiful. That was great. And last Sunday, one of them was baptized. That was fun. I, and you know what? And for some reason, all the staff weren't able to get into the baptismal tank, so... I jumped in the baptismal tank, ran back, got changed, came back and preached that sermon last week, but I was really pumped because the people in the baptismal tank were hugging me and crying and carrying on. It was awesome. You know? I tell you, I get the most out of all this. Why am I saying all of that? I need helpers. But I don't need bodies. I need workers. I need people to say, Pastor, I'm going to switch service for one year to help you build that church. Because, you know, I'll tell you a little secret. The ripest people to win for Christ for our church are the people that come and visit. How many think, well, that is a no-brainer. And you know, a lot of times what does churches do? We ignore our visitors. Our church is pretty good by not doing that. But I want to get better at that. I want to make sure they all get, you know, they all have an opportunity to hear the gospel, all have an opportunity to respond. And not only that, I'm not satisfied with that alone. I had a little chat with Jonathan. He's their new adult edu education guy. I said, Jonathan, this is what's wrong in our culture today. Coming to church on Sunday morning or Sunday night is not enough. <gasps> Let me explain what I mean by that. Most of you get, become a believer, you're not trained. How many say, you know, if I was shipped off to go fight a war and nobody trained me, I'd probably get killed. And you know why most Christians are ineffective? It's because they're not trained. It's true. And so we're very committed to making you guys highly equipped, the elite, if I can say this, the elite fighting force of God's army in our community. That's my prayer. Lord, make us the elite troops. I want to train these guys so that when they come up against people, they have so much stuff inside of them that they're equipped to actually be able to handle the objections, the questions, the problems. You know, and I'm not going to change who you are personality-wise. We're not asking you to go door to door. That's what I'm, I'm saying, okay? What I'm asking you to do, we're going to figure out how you're wired, how you're gifted, and so that you can flow in your gift. Let's say you're a prayer. 
We're going to actually give you an assigned area to pray for. We're going to tell you how to pray for it. We're going to believe it's like, you know, artillery going in and, and landing, you know, on the beaches there before we send the troops in. We're going to have everybody figure out how they fit, fit into this, and collectively, we're going to enter city. It's not just solo run shots into the community. You know, that's what's happening right now. A couple of people run in and do a few things, pull a few people out. That's about the extent of it. Now we're going to train the whole church to function as a unit. And everybody has a part to play. If you're a caregiver, you're going to talk to Pastor Mark. We're going to train you as a Stevens minister. Why? Because we believe that so many hundreds of people are going to get saved. They're going to, and, and even if they're not saved, at first they're going, to, they're going to assign the Stevens minister to walk alongside of them through their crisis until they come to Christ. And they start growing in their faith. Right, Mark? But we're believing for that. We need people. Here's the problem. Not enough workers. Not volunteers. Workers. We're going to move you from being a volunteer in your head to a worker. So with every head bowed right now, I'm going to ask the question today. How many here can honestly say, you can say, Pastor, I'm giving it everything I've got. Just raise your hand. I'm giving it everything I've got. Come on. So I've got my hand up. I'm, I'm, I believe I'm giving it everything I've got. Okay. Great. Love it. Seven or eight people raise their hands. Come on. There's got to be more than that. How many people say, you know, Pastor, there's reservations in my life. I haven't been giving it everything I got. But by the grace of God, I'm going to give it everything I've got. I'm not going to stand in front of Jesus and Paris because I held back. Just raise your hand. That's you today. Wow, there's a lot of people raising their hands this morning. That's great. I'm going to pray for you. Because, you see, if you guys have just now raised your hand, will say, okay, I can do more than what I'm doing. I'm not trying to make you overwork. Don't misunderstand. That's another whole negative issue. We have to find balance in life. But what you're saying is, I can do more. I can give more. I'm, I'm, not, I'm holding back, Pastor. For whatever reason. I'm not gonna, there's all kinds of reasons why. We're going to do everything we can to make you guys the elite troops of Christ in our city. But you've got to be willing. You come to my class, you can ask the people that make it. I give you homework. I make you read books. I make you write papers. Yeah, that's right. And that's how you grow. I tell them, at the end of my class, you will learn a lot because you're going to put something into it. I'm not going to spoon feed you. I'm not babying you. Okay? So if you're a brand new Christian, I don't mind burping you and changing the diaper. Okay? I have no problem with that. I'm good with little kids. I like kids. I'll change their diapers even. But I'll tell you one thing. If you've been you know, a Christian for 30 years and you're still doing it in your pants, that's a problem. You know, we've got to house train you, house break you or something, right? We want you to grow up. I know these analogies are a little bit, maybe a little bit darker today, but I'm trying to get a point across, right? We're getting the picture. How many getting the picture? What am I telling you? You've got to grow up. you got to grow up. Amen? you got to grow up. So let's pray. Lord, help us step up, grow up, become a lean, dynamic, heavyweight for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.